This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. There's a new kid in town Everybody loves him Well, it does look like there will be a new kid in town. Larry Kudlow reportedly said to replace Gary Cohn as director of the White House National Economic Council. This is coming from various reports, including one uh, by a competitor. And uh, this is all according to a person familiar. But uh, as we wait for it to be formal, let's talk about uh, the individual, Larry Kudlow, well-known, uh, a media personality. Steve Matthews has been doing some digging. Um, he is our economics reporter, Bloomberg News, <laughs> joining us from our bureau in Atlanta. I know you're eager. I can hear you. Um I love your story. You take a look at Larry Kudlow, The Economist, what we know about him. Give us a little bit about his background. So Larry is a really interesting guy on a number of levels. Uh, He's kind of a traditional uh, free market economist. Uh, He's been a real cheerleader for growth on the Republican side. Uh, And uh, in that way, he really fits into the whole Trump administration view that you're going to get uh, three, four, five percent growth and that those are, are rational uh, targets. Uh, the, the one thing that really jumps out at you, particularly given what's going on right now, is that he has been a big free trade advocate. Mm-hmm. And that could cause some friction given, uh, you know, we just had imposed steel and aluminum tariffs. And he has been less than enthusiastic about that. And that's not only when it was candidate Donald Trump, but even more recently, right? Following the tariffs. Exactly. I mean, even in the last uh, you know few weeks, he has been very skeptical of uh, of tariffs. And y- you know, he he will be someone. It, it says basically that Trump is fine with bringing in some different points of view, and and he will likely have some allies with uh, Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and uh, Kevin Hassett at CA, who also are kind of traditional free traders. So it'll be an interesting debate at the White House. Now, earlier I mentioned at the top of our broadcast that you would be coming on and, and kind of looking at some different things and coming at, you know, looking at some of his comments and forecasts. He missed the financial crisis big time. But to be <laughs> fair, so did a lot of people. Yeah, there, there were a few people who were kind of predicting uh, the housing bubble and the financial crisis. Larry was not among them in uh in the mid uh, uh, 2000s, uh, he was saying, wow, you know, housing bubble in, in Florida or Las Vegas, there's no housing bubble. And of course, that was totally wrong. Uh, he, he was saying in December 2007, which is when the National Bureau of Economic Research dated the beginning of the recession, uh, that we're in the middle of an economic boom. And, of course, that was, no, we were actually in a recession then. <laughs> and, and then in the aftermath of the recession, he was saying, you know, as a number of um, conservative eco- economists uh, on the Republican side were saying, you know, we could have runaway inflation. Uh, Janet Yellen was going to bring about huge amounts of inflation and, and is a big worry. And, no, Janet Yellen actually didn't bring about a big round of inflation. 
Interesting. And you mentioned to Scott, uh, Steve, rather, that, you know, he's pretty aggressive when it comes to growth and he's looking for about a 5% uh, growth rate. What does he, does he have, do we have any idea about how he thinks we'd get there? Because that's pretty aggressive. Well, just the kind of general contours that uh, you get there from less regulation, lower taxes, uh, you know, kind of, you know, unleashing the animal spirits of the economy in terms of the exact policy changes that he would be putting into effect, not so much, but but just the general contours of the policies. And he was really spot on when he said that if Donald Trump was elected president, which of course he was, he did say the stock market would go up. That is true. Before the election, he said, uh, if uh, Trump is elected, you're going to see a stock market boom. And it was interesting because you had a bunch of economists, including like Paul Krugman, uh, who, who the, the uh, prominent liberal economist, saying right, we're going to see a, a yeah. big crash in the market if that happens, and like sell, sell, sell. And it's like uh, that was not correct, and and uh, and Larry was correct. You know, Steve, what do we know too? Like this is not a bashful guy, Larry Kudlow. Uh, for any of us who've been either watching him. Uh, as a commentator uh, and media personality. He's not bashful. He's not shy. But I am curious. You know, that trade policy is what really got tricky when it came to Gary Cohn uh, and, you know, kind of the Trump administration's anti-globalization policies, you know, Rex Tillerson too. This is what became areas of conflict uh, within the Trump administration. And I'm just curious, you know, how far... Uh, Larry Kudlow might push it uh, once, if indeed he does make it to the White House. That'll be really interesting because his motto has kind of been free market capitalism is the best path to prosperity. And that was kind of like a saying that he would put on his on his show every night and and end up with. And um, it's very much you're going to hear that a lot from the White House when he's there. But on trade, he may have to moderate his views a little bit. And, and already you have some people who are predicting that he might not last that long of a long of a time because, you know, he loves the camera. He's very good on camera. He's very outspoken. And how much room is there in the White House for outspoken people who are good on camera uh, before they run into, you know, some conflicts? Yeah, it's yeah. He's he's definitely a supporter, uh, but they certainly have disagreed about some things. And and Kudlow has come out and and certainly levied criticism uh, against the president. We shall see. Um, Steve Matthews, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, digging into assessing some of Larry Kudlow's calls uh, as a market commentator and as an economist. Steve Matthews is our economics reporter at Bloomberg News. So we mentioned earlier that we had some disappointing retail sales in the month of February, kind of suggesting the Americans are still coping with a hangover after a late 2017 buying uh, buying bid. But tax cuts and a strong job market may provide the cure or perhaps voice shopping technology. John Franklin is associate partner of the retail practice of the global consulting firm OCNC Strategy. I got too much sleep or not enough last night. I can't figure it out. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Wednesday. John, welcome. Hello. Tell me a little bit about what you guys are doing and what you're looking to, because you came in with a bunch of research when it comes to voice recognition technology and how it applies to retail. Absolutely. Um, so firstly, voice shopping is one of the next big things we think. Uh, we've seen a lot in the in the market from you know, e-commerce 10 years ago, mobile commerce five years ago. 
And for us, we think voice commerce is really going to be the next big uh, disruptive channel uh, coming into retail. What is it? What do you mean when you say voice? Because I think my husband is is fearful that myself and my daughter are going to be like, we don't have an Alexa, but hey, Alexa, buy me everything. Yeah. Big concern, right? Yeah. Uh, no, when we say voice shopping, it's pretty much that. It's saying, hey, Alexa, uh, how about uh, some new socks? Hey, Alexa, order me a pizza. Hey, Alexa, order me an Uber. All of these new commands are very much, you know, coming up uh, and people are using them more and more uh, as part of our everyday interaction of Alexa. Right. It's quite interesting, actually, because what we used to see when Alexa first came out, uh, what, three, four years ago, uh, was people saying, hey, Alexa, set me an alarm. Hey, Alexa, set a timer. Hey, Alexa, tell me a joke. Right. Uh, and actually, as people get more and more used to this technology, they're really warming up to the idea of shopping. And we see it already today. We think in the US there's about $2 billion of retail spend going through Alexa and, to a lesser extent, Google. Give me some perspective. So $2 billion going through versus how big is the online retail market or the overall retail market? Absolutely. So $2 billion today would be an absolute fraction. Mm. Uh, however, we think by 2022, so just four years' time, that $2 billion is actually going to become $40 billion, Oh, my God. At which point we're yeah. talking about 8% of the total online market in the US. So it's starting to be a pretty meaningful number. And it's a case of online shifting to voice shopping, right? It's a little bit of... Uh, or some of it. It's a little bit of offline ship it, uh, shifting to voice. But in the main, it's people uh, switching their traditional online shop or existing online shop into that voice channel and seeing that as the easier channel to interact Americans uh, with those are, retailers. We're getting more and more comfortable, right, with surrounding ourselves with technology and interacting with technology. What about, because you said to me, do you have an Alexa, you know, do you have anything at home? Uh, and I'm like, no, not yet. We're an Apple household. Put that out there. But I'm also a little hinky about these devices being able to kind of listen in at will. Mm. And that is very interesting. It's one of the things which our report really highlighted. Uh, so this study, we asked 1,500 uh, consumers across the US, people who are existing voice shoppers. And one of their big uh, challenges with voice was actually the trust issue. Mm. And actually having this device in your household, which you know, is listening in, is Alexa, uh, the woman in the corner to some extent for some people. <laughs> and actually, Sometimes laughing in the corner. Sometimes laughing awkwardly in the corner. <laughs> that would be certainly scary for some. Right. Um, but no, this sort of issue around trust and actually how do I know, how do I believe that you are giving me the right product? So I'm very reliant on Alexa's recommendation or Google's recommendation that this is a product I should be buying. Tell me about the uh, clients that you guys are talking to in the retail sector, because I think about Arshira Ovaday has a column on the Bloomberg Today and talks about just how Amazon dominates everything and every CEO. You know, it's not just the retail industry, but a lot of different industries, you know, talks talks about, you know, what their Amazon strategy Mm -hmm. is. It comes up in the earnings calls. That's what they, they talk about. So... What's your advice? Because if I'm talking to Alexa, Alexa, you know, and I say I need some socks, you know, how do we how do we know that you don't get steered in a certain direction and certain retailers will benefit over others? Absolutely. So this is very much one of the questions which uh, our clients ask us all the time. Mm. So we work with big retailers, big consumer goods companies uh, across the U.S. and globally. And a very consistent message and question we see from CEOs, from C-suite execs in those companies is one, how do I compete in the world of Amazon? What do I need to be doing? How do I play against them? And how do I play with them? Right. They're now so big that for most companies, actually, it's not just competing with, it's existing with and actually playing with them. The second question we then get is, how do I prepare for the future? 
So how do I actually think about my next, you know, my digital strategy, my right. overall strategy for the next right? five years? Yeah. And, and what do you tell them? And what do we tell them? Especially with 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 you know where right, voice commerce, which we don't we haven't really started talking about too much here, but that's a real category. Absolutely. So voice commerce, we say real category. We think it's going to hit forty billion within four years. So starting to be real numbers behind this. The first thing we say with regard voice and with regard that sort of disruptive threat is start playing in it. So few retailers today even have a presence in voice commerce. Back end of last year, we saw Walmart and Target start to move into this space and start to develop. Uh, presence on Google Express, so mm -hmm. getting in and playing with Google. That is a real sort of you know turning point and starting point for retailers to actually engage in voice. So firstly, they need to get in and play with it. They then need to think about how you interact with voice. So actually making your products really discoverable from a right. voice search, not a not a visual search. It's fascinating, right? And and maybe this is a wake up call to retailers who, in many, miss the online wave and were 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 slow to the gate in terms of de developing their digital strategy. But maybe they've got to be front and center when it comes to a, a voice retail strategy. Very cool stuff, John Franklin. Thank you so much. He is associate partner of the retail practice at OCNC Strategy in our New York studio. We want to talk a little bit about precious metals because I got to tell you, on Twitter this week, I got a tweet noting dollar up, gold down, dollar down, gold down, market up, gold down, market down, gold down. And this uh, one individual saying that gold has become a lost agent city. We'll see what Trey Reich has to say about that. He's senior portfolio manager at Sprott Asset Management, $8.5 billion in assets under management. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. What's up with the trade in gold? I think that. Uh, the big variable this year, uh, Carol, is that um, we've said for a long time that interest rates cannot rise with this much credit in the system without causing immediate stress. And we're talking about both the long and the short end. Uh, and now the Fed's put through five rate hikes since December of 2015, and we're starting to see increased uh, stress uh, on the consumer side from mortgage delinquencies to subprime auto delinquencies to a collapse in the personal savings rate from, say, 5.8 to about 3 uh, in the last two years. And on the long end, I think things have been a little bit more spectacular. The 10-year finally broke through its 35-year downtrend uh, in mid-January at about 2.6. And it took about two-tenths of, uh, of a percent on the 10-year yield to knock, you know, 10% out of the S&P in pretty short order. So I think that's going to be uh, the surprise or, or, or the big event in the gold trade is recognition that another four rate hikes, which some people are expecting, coupled with $420 billion in balance sheet reduction from the Fed, which is equivalent to about another 50 basis point rate hike, is a hell of a lot more than the system can handle with this much credit. Are you nervous about the outlook? It was interesting when you talked about the car loans, consumer spending, or personal spending way down, debt levels rising. Mm -hmm. When you say nervous about the outlook, you mean for the We're, economy? Yeah, worried about maybe a little, a, a little bit of a crisis maybe forming somewhere. Yeah. So it's funny. There's a lot of stuff going well right now in the world in yeah. terms of stocks hitting new highs, uh, most notably, uh, which seems to be about a weekly occurrence for the last couple of years. They did, but, too, before the financial crisis. They did, too, before the tech meltdown. <laughs> well, there's a lot of 1987 parallels. You yes. Know, it's just uh, Mr. Bernanke, or excuse me, Mr. Greenspan, uh, took over as Fed chair in August of 1987, uh, and there had been about a you know 137 basis points of hikes, very similar to the 125 today. Yeah. You know the stock market had had a strong period, uh, and 10-year yields had backed up uh, pretty measurably, and uh, there was 
the intent to try to show being tough uh, from the new Fed chair's point of view. And here we have Mr. Powell uh, greeted on his first day by a thousand point decline. So the parallels are are uh, are many. Um, but I think there's a lot of stuff that I think people are glossing over. Number one, we clearly have left a period of unparalleled uh, lack of volatility in terms of equity averages, and that's well documented. Um, we have this 10-year breaking out of a 35-year downtrend. We have this stress uh, from uh, cons- uh, consumer stress from Fed rate hikes. We also have the dollar as sort of the canary in the coal mine all through the 2017 euphoria for Trumponomics, et cetera, with mm-hmm. e- uh, in equity markets. Uh, the dollar put in its worst year uh, in 15 and is off to a pretty slumpy start uh, this year. And now we're going to throw into that mix the fiscal position of the United States, which really wasn't on anybody's mind as recently as three months ago, is now considerably worse in terms of the $1.5 trillion cost of the tax cuts, the $300 billion in right. extra spending. and But does anybody really care, right? I mean, I go back a few years. You know this. You've mm-hmm. seen the cycles where, you know, that's all politicians talked about. We've got to cut the debt. we got to cut, you know, mm-hmm. we've got to cut the debt. Um, bond vigilant. Like, you know, all this stuff going on, and nobody seems to care. Yeah. As long as stocks hit new highs on a weekly basis, nobody cares about much in terms of uh, mm-hmm. potential challenges. But I do think, again, to uh, to repeat, I think uh, the Fed raising rates four times this year, coupled with that balance sheet reduction, I see as a very unlikely event, given the amount of credit that's in the system. And I think Still, we're going to start yeah. to see, uh, you know, tangible um, uh, displacements in credit markets if that turns out to be the case, if they, if they follow through with those four rate hikes. When you guys look at the precious metal market, where are the opportunities right now? Well, uh, looking at gold from a personal perspective, there should always be a physical allocation first. There should be some sort of a vehicle, uh, you know, in the equity arena. Um, and then equity uh, equities themselves, gold equities, are sort of the last component of that picture. And mm-hmm. gold's volatile to begin with, and the equities are even more volatile. Uh, but gold stocks uh, are the cheapest they have been relative to bullion for many decades. Uh, and I think I believe gold is setting a nice base here in the low 1300s, mainly due to physical demand. And if we get uh, gold starting to trend up, uh, if any of these sources of stress that we've described starts to amp up a little bit, gold stocks are in a position to really outperform. Right. We have to remember in 2016, uh, from January 1 to mid-August, on a 28% move in the gold price, the GDX was up 120 in the smaller GDXJ was up 180%. So it can happen pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a proven uh, beta to bullion leverage in the gold equities. And uh, because they're so washed out in terms of sentiment, uh, I think the move is likely to be pretty spectacular. So are you suggesting at this point that investors think about either increasing or creating some exposure to gold or, or other precious metals at this point? Absolutely. I think with this much credit in the system, uh, and as and, and as you know, we've talked about rising rates for the last 35 years. Every time we've had a backup in 10-year yields, we've had a financial crisis pretty pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, as I mentioned earlier, this time we just took uh, you know a 20 basis point increase in the 10-year and knocked 10% off the S&P. So if we do start to see um, some of these uh, uh, rate uh, hikes uh, take hold, I think that uh, gold's a pretty mandatory portfolio allocation. Um, over time, you know, a 2 to 4 to 
gold allocation has always increased returns with the same amount of risk uh, or, uh, you know, incre- uh, achieve the same returns with less risk because of the non-correlating nature of gold as a portfolio asset. Trey, just got about 50 seconds left here. Um, how much of political risk, global political risk, do you think is an important thing to kind of keep a watch on in mm-hmm. terms of maybe a play in gold? Well, interestingly, I am one of the gold enthusiasts who believe that political risk, geopolitical risk, are, are really not what moves gold or what you really want to see happen, because what it generally does is it brings a group of short-term owners in, and then you have to sort of have them get out before yeah. you can resume what gold's really all about. Not and a gold's, lasting trade. Yeah, it's all about monetary imbalances. Um, the claims on productive output uh, vis-a-vis you know, paper assets, stocks and bonds, vastly exceeding any underlying productive output. I'm also a person who doesn't really believe CPI inflation has much to do with it either. I always say, why would you buy gold? Because of the uh, prices, you know, hedonically adjusted prices of hot dogs in Houston goes up. <laughs> so it's much more about imbalances and, and monetary concerns, which are right. uh, really simmering. And that's what really impacts um, the market, the economy, the global economy, if you start to see kind of money getting tighter. Mm-hmm. Um, Trey, thank you. Sure. Trey Reich, Senior Portfolio Manager at Sprott Asset Management, $8.5 billion in assets under management. You tell lies, thinking I can't see. You can't cry because you're laughing at me. I'm down. Love this. This is uh, the chart of the day, and it's talking about a relationship between Treasuries and S and P 500 dividends. Bloomberg stocks columnist Dave Wilson to explain it all. Hey, Dave. I, I thought you were going to tell me you love that Beatles song. I'm down. <laughs> I do. Well, I do love that too. But hey, well, there you that's go. A given. Okay, that's fine then. What's down is the question, and it's uh, the dividend yields on the S and P 500 relative to the yields on 10-year Treasuries. So, in essence, you know, a way to judge the relative. Uh, returns you would get as an investor on stocks and bonds. And what we've seen is that gap has widened out in the past several months. And it's something that got the attention of David Templeton, who's a money manager and principal at Haran Capital Advisors. And he, in turn, was reminded of a study that CFRA strategist Sam Stovall did last year, where he looked at stock performance over one-year periods depending on what that yield relationship was like. In other words, what the gap was. And last month, we got above one percentage point for the first time since January 2014, with Treasury yields going up and exceeding the yields on uh, S&P 500 stocks when it comes to their payouts. So history, as Mm -hmm. compiled by Stovall, would tell you, he went back half a century and looked at uh, average performance. One year out, you might get a 5% gain. That was the average for the S&P 500, which sounds okay, except if you look at smaller gaps, zero to one percentage point, the average gain was 11%. And now you have the potential for this uh, relationship to widen out even more. I mean, given uh, you know the concern that's out there that inflation will accelerate and that the Federal Reserve is going to be raising interest rates, and when you put that all together, that potential for a wider gap or spread, well, Haran figures, or had Templeton in his post, that it will be a headwind for stocks. I mean, that's the key here that, let's face it, if you're buying shares for income, you know, you, you 
are giving up more than you would have even a couple of years well, it's ba- ago. It's basically just as yields are going up on treasuries, it's they, they can challenge what you would get on the S&P 500 in terms of dividend yields. It becomes a little bit more of a competitive investment marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, just think about, you know, in the last couple of years, how often do we talk about utility stocks or right. real estate or whatever uh, being attractive for investors because bond yields were so low? Well, that sort of works in reverse. And, you know, that's the concern is we're going to start to see that happen and work against stocks. If you want to know more folks, send me an email. I'll get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. All right. Thank you for that. Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist with his chart of the day. Uh, we appreciative. We are appreciative today for that. But thanks. Uh, no thanks. According to Google, they're looking to ban cryptocurrency and initial coin offerings, ICOs. Let's talk about the what, why and when of this. Mark Bergen is technology reporter at Bloomberg News. He's joining us on the phone in San Francisco. Hey, Mark. Um, what's going on? Yeah, Google is following Facebook here. You know, Google is, uh, they made $995 billion last year in online ads. They have a clear incentive to to make sure that they can police that environment uh, and and keep consumers happy with ads. And so they have an annual ad, what they call the bad ads report, and they show the number of um, malicious um, ads that they take down over the year. And then with that, they're updating their policies around financial products. Uh, and that includes uh, coming in June. We don't know the exact date, uh, but they're going to outright ban any ads for cryptocurrencies, initial coin offerings, uh, binary options, and a slew of kind of risky financial products. I wonder how the advertising market looks at all of this, because I think about, you know, if we watch traditional broadcast TV, right, sometimes late at night, mm-hmm. there's some questionable ads that make it uh, to air about, you know, investments in, I don't know, gold bullion or coins or something like right. that. You know, so what's what are the rules in the world of online content and social media versus kind of traditional media? Yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, Google and Facebook are, are effectively a duopoly, uh, and they, they control a, a massive share of the online marketing, um, and, and they sort of write their own rules. I mean, they're, they're regulated. They're definitely not regulated as, as tightly. The FEC is certainly taking that into consideration right now. Uh, you know, Google has had they, this past fall. Uh, they took some action against um, ads around uh, opiate treatment and, and uh, health-related queries. Um, they, there's a lot of I think what they see is, just, you know, open, they see a potential for litigation, they see a potential for a consumer outcry, and that's typically when they take action. Right. And let, let's also, there's something that's, you know, things can go viral pretty quickly when they're online. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just a mm-hmm. single ad uh, that we see out there, but it can be multiplied many times over. Yeah, I mean, right right now, I don't know how much people are paying, but um, mm-hmm. I imagine they're pretty good rates. If you like, I just did a search for if you do a search for how to buy Bitcoin or cryptocurrency searches or initial coin offerings, um, you know, on Google, they're going to have the top, top four slots or, or all search ads. Um, those are auction based and sometimes they're, they're probably highly competitive and people are playing, paying a lot of money. Um, so, you know, Google is sacrificing revenue here. Um, but but clearly they, they think it's it's worth the sacrifice. Uh, just got about twenty seconds, just quickly, Mark. I mean, are we hearing anything from the cryptocurrency community about about this happening? Uh, we know we saw the prices drop this morning on Bitcoin. I think uh, a lot of them are probably expecting it after the Facebook uh, move. So I'm not sure it was a total surprise. All right, going to leave it on that note. Thanks for the update, Mark Bergen. He is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone in San Francisco. You can check out more of his work. Just go to Twitter at mhbergen, or you can also check out uh, Top Tech. 
uh, on the Bloomberg technology and Bloomberg.com menus. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. With us is Carol Schleif, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Abbott Downing. It's a high net worth investment division of Wells Fargo Asset Management. Carol joining us uh, on the phone from Minneapolis. Carol, nice to have you here. Um, tell me a little bit about this market environment and what your clients, you deal with high net worth individuals and investors. What do they want to know about what's going on in this uh, market environment? I think a, a big piece of what a lot of investors, including our clients, are looking at now is they're paying a lot more attention to policy talk coming out of Washington. One of the most amazing pieces of resiliency to the market over the last year and a half is it seemed like it was able to sort of segment off and not worry about all the sausage making going on in D.C., but some of the recent moves, particularly as they relate to tariffs and and controversial potentially for import-export news, it's getting the market's attention, and it's pretty clear some of the even the changes in the administration are getting the market's attention. Right. Having said that, you know, you take a look at something like the NASDAQ, which has rallied back from the sell-off. It's now up uh, about 8.5%. It was up about 10% earlier this week. Um, what adjustments are you, if any, making to portfolios? And I realize when you're dealing with high net worth individuals, you're often making longer-term investments. and in some, in some cases, maybe stuff isn't so liquid that you can move in and out of it. But I'm just curious, have you made any adjustments to account for what looks like volatility, certainly an increase and comeback of volatility in the financial markets. I think the the issue is, is the return of volatility is normal. Having some level of volatility in markets is actually a good thing, and it's something we can lean into, especially to the extent we've got cash flows coming into portfolios or things. So you might use it to rebalance, for example, looking at things like the growth trade has definitely been on for the last 18 months. So if you had invested at the start of 2017 and let things run, your fixed income, your private capital, your your domestic versus international split are going to be a little off kilter. So using that volatility to rebalance some of that makes sense. Mm-hmm. As far as rejiggering portfolios based on any potential or implied policy moves, we don't. We wouldn't do that. Although we watch really carefully because everyone's focused on inflation or the potential for inflation, um, strength of business, and we continue to think despite the volatility that you'll see stronger, a a really nicely flowing economy this year. And so staying invested is important, but just jiggering at at the fringes would be something that we've been doing all along. It's something we always do, but particularly when you have more volatility like you've seen in the last month, it's allowed us to be pretty active at the at the margin, if you will. All right. So pretty active at the margin. So it doesn't sound like it's a real aggressive change or move, but but you can tinker a little bit. There's a quote that you find interesting right now. Julius Caesar has, has said it. As a rule, men worry about what they can't see than about what they do. How does that apply to what's going on here today in, in this market environment? 
I think it applies pretty distinctly because every time you get a change, you know, when when the first trial balloon or trial missile went up on, we're going to apply tariffs across the board unilaterally to everybody. The market reacted, played what if, and went many iterations down the road. And then the actual implementation, which we haven't seen yet, but the, the actual formal announcement was a little less aggressive and overt than the first one. And so it just means that rather than sit around and worry about all of these things that you can't control and play what if, and there's a fine line between planning for the future and obsessing worryingly. One of the other phrases I've heard frequently is um, worrying is suffering in advance and it doesn't change the outcome. So we spend a lot of time talking about what we can control, which is portfolio rebalancing, costs being tax efficient, things like that. Hey, what I want to ask you too is I know another thing that you're kind of keeping an eye on is kind of the divergences that we're starting to see within the marketplace. Our Dave Wilson was just on and his chart of the day talked about the yield gap between 10-year treasuries and S&P 500 dividends and how it's getting wide enough to cause concern on stocks. Basically, you know, treasuries are starting to get to be maybe a little bit more competitive when it comes to returns uh, versus what you get for the S&P 500 dividend return. Uh, when you look at divergences, what do you think, What what's of note that you think is worth talking about, and, and maybe what does it tell you? Well, the one of the biggest divergences is between growth and value stocks, and you're seeing, you've seen some of that. It's probably the widest divergence. At the end of last year, you had S&P and Russell value names up in the 27 to 30% kind of range, and and value na- or growth names up that much, and the value names up barely single digits. But before you leave, before we leave the argument on the the parity between the dividend yield and the fixed income yield, mm-hmm. the important thing to remember is the dividend yield tends to grow eight to ten percent a year on average. Mm-hmm. Um, S and P, so it has an inflation. Um, component to it, which helps cushion, whereas if you left a 3% yield up now or 2.5% yield up now and inflation runs to the long-term historical average of 3, you're still going to be losing ground relative to that. So, um, But that growth versus value or defensive... And just got about 25 seconds. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. That growth versus value trade is, um, is historically wide divergence, and it's based yeah. a lot on the favorable policies we've got. All right. And something to keep an eye on. Carol, thank you. Carol Schleif. She is at Abbott Downing. They're a division of Wells Fargo Asset Management. They work with uh, high net worth individuals. She's the Deputy Chief Investment Officer, and Carol joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 